My guest today is Priyanka Rana, born in India in 1980. Priyanka's early inquiries into aesthetics and philosophy and professional work in exhibitions led her to establish a full-time sculpture practice in 2018. Largely self-taught, Priyanka's experiments with various sculptural materials have led to a nearly singular engagement with untreated wood. Her practice is rooted in ecology and sustainability. She works with local trees transforming naturally felled trunks into abstract sculptures using a range of power tools. She charts many of her surfaces which she likens to painting with fire. Living and working in San Francisco, California's Bay Area, Priyanka's work has been shown at a number of art festivals and through prestigious and highly visible public art commissions. Priyanka's story is fascinating. And cliched as it may sound, it's a reminder that there are countless reasons why something can't be done, but only one why it can, because you decide to do it. Without further ado, let's dive right in to listen to Priyanka firsthand. Hi, Priyanka. Very warm welcome to Atlanta Diaries. And thank you for sharing your journey and inspiring others. Well, thank you for having me. You know, I'm following the podcasts and you do a great job of bringing these stories and inspiring us. And I hope through your journey, many, many more Priyankas get inspired. I think the first thing which comes to my mind is from a corporate career, moving into event management and ultimately becoming a sculptor. How do you believe your early years or your upbringing influenced and shaped this courage to take this plunge to this transformative journey? Um, actually, I would say it was kind of a, the lack of courage in the first place. Mm-hmm. Because to tell your stories, to be an artist means you feel their stories matter, that somebody wants to and needs to hear these. And that took time for me to come to that place in life. I knew that I am a creative person and I needed creative outlets. And that's why I moved from being a market research analyst. And even in my research analyst career, I think I was much better at doing trend analysis and putting forward a story to the clients. And that's what everybody loved rather than just playing with the numbers. But I pivoted to a more creative career, to events management. And I thought that's creative enough, but there was something still lacking, it seems. And finally, I came to my own as an artist and say, that's it. You know, I'm going to now finally tell my stories. I love that. So, you know, I've heard that word story again and again. Is there any particular story which sort of compelled you to say, okay, now that's it. I want to pivot. I think many things that happened at the same time, there was a trip to Japan. We spent about two and a half months there. And this could be, you know, of course, like every society, there's the goods and the bads. But what I could see was that everybody took their job with pride and they did it with utmost sincerity. And they would uplift that everyday role of, you know, it could be somebody that you're just checking in the car with or the Roy Khan hostess who's helping your child take the shoes off. And I felt That's what I want to do. Like my job inspires me and elevates that every day of my life. And my husband couldn't get back to his work while I didn't want to come back to mine. And I thought that that needs to change. I need to bring in something that gives me that same aha moment every day. And then I decided to do an experimental journey for a couple of months. And I was painting my trellis, which is a long trellis in the backyard. You know, painting above your head requires your strength and muscles. And I loved that part that labor, which mm-hmm. we kind of look down upon in our current times. But I absolutely enjoyed it. And I thought there was actually something wrong with me, that I love the labor and not the brain part. And the repetitive part was very meditative as well. And I want to explore more. Where does this lead? For a while, I was like, no, this can't be. 
what am I enjoying here? But then I thought, let's push forward. And I apprenticed with our handy person. I told her that, you know, I want to learn how do you use power tools. She was kind enough to agree to shadow her one day. And I did everything wrong. She's like, don't do that. The paint's going to be on you. Don't do this. The whiplash is going to happen. I came back with a wood whiplash with paint on my shoes and very tired. And then I thought, I'm going to pause and take gentle steps into this. Then I took some clay classes, which was nice. I was able to build my pottery. But, you know, I'm a rough person and I felt I'll end up breaking all my sculptures. This is not the medium for me. Then I went and took some more classes about sculpting, where there were live models and we had to do what they did. And I was lucky enough that just when I started, there was a teacher, American artist, who was famous for his portraits. He's learned the old maestro way in Italy, and he was taking a three-day class. That was my first long hours of sculpting. And I absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, there was a live model. She wanted to buy that piece. And that's when I realized that I can see things. And then I knew that I only have to learn now how to translate it into the medium of my choice. But I can't tell you, it's such a joy to finally translate what you see or what you want. I knew that clay was not my final medium. So I was looking for more mediums. I went to community college to learn, you know, metal pouring. That's the journey started there, I guess. It was just one little door opening to the other, to the other, till I found which made more sense. And I think there is always a sense of discovery in my studio. And I feel... It comes from how I started, perhaps, sculpting. It started with a you know, discovery, like what, how. There was no formal training. And I think I want my viewers also, when you interact with my sculptures, when you see them, I want that sense of discovery in the story, in the medium, in the processes. So I'm always experimenting, even in my studio with different things, different forms. Yeah. Beautiful. It's just so fascinating. But tell me, in the whole arena of arts, how come sculpting? and not painting. So many other options are there, right? You know, I get asked this question so often, and I absolutely have no idea why sculpting. I'd never sculpted before. Actually, one time I did in Chandigarh. I had participated in the cartoon competition, and there was a chance for us to sculpt something, and I did something in clay. It was very tactile. I loved that feeling of, again, creating this form. Not that we did not participate as a team as college, but I loved that experience. But other than that, I don't think... There was anything that I'd ever sculpted before. In fact, I ordered clay on Amazon and I made a face, which I thought was 3D, but it was really just a 2D. And my kid's nanny came over, you know, and she's like, oh, did my (laughs) five-year-old I make that? (laughs) And yet I have no clue. What is it in me that felt like, oh, you know what? You've got it. Go ahead and follow it and go to that class and do it. By sculpting, I still don't have the answer, really. I understand. And on a lighter note, what was your reaction when she thought it's your child's work? (laughs) I laughed because I do trust Irma. You know, she's like somebody who helped me and I truly value her aesthetics and her input. So I laughed so much and I'm like, I got to improve. I got to learn. And I think let's just talk a little bit more about that, right? So not just sculpting, you know, I think just the, the use of tools is so unique, like using a chainsaw is unconventional, no doubt. And I think I remember you use the word badass and I think it's totally badass, right? So how come metal sculpting? And I'm also wondering what else is there on your badass list? (laughs) I do wonder sometimes why did I choose one of the hardest words, one of the hardest mediums? And in that oak wood, 
and in that chainsaw you know it could be hand chiseling i think once you use power tools the energy that flows through you it is unparalleled in fact now i have to be in a mode to use my hands in a more delicate way in clay it's like gushing and again from a farming background like the tubal water flows and versus the tap flow there's a difference in that but i do feel like the people on the way who helped me like i still go to our handy person if i have any questions elisons very good in giving me inputs and also when i went to community college i was lucky that the teacher was a woman and just like atlanta diaries it helps to know that there is another woman teaching and doing there is an example before you i ordered chainsaw on amazon i asked wow. the to teach like or we my sensei teach me how do you do the chainsaw and there was the scary part that you know i hope i'm not going to lose my limbs on the way but you also learn to realize that you know these are powerful tools respect them and use them that way i saw a lot of videos before my kids know not to interfere but my whole family knows not to surprise me when i'm using my chainsaw so if they need to come and need help they come and stand on the side till i catch an eye that they're here i dress up like an astronaut you know i wear my gloves i wear my mask i wear my everything my mom's worried that my skin and my hair is getting impacted so i now also cover it like a surgeon you respect these tools and then they become your friends what else is on the bad as list is also i have fire torch which i used to char my wood again i feel over time you get used to it to become your friends the first time i used the fire torch was i think a commission that i got which is like a 6 feet tall log that i've planned to char and then i thought i hope i don't end up this big californian fire in the process because the sound of fire is also very intimidating at the same time but then you learn to recognize the sounds you learn to recognize the processes yet you still respect the danger in it for sure at the same time i'm just curious like how come oak tree how come trees so things fell in my lap and then i went with it so a tree had fallen on a friend's property and it is a beautiful heritage oak tree and then i saw the wood and i was telling her like you should not get rid of this wood it's beautiful so it was lying for a year and finally she called me she's like i'm done with this wood lying in my back <laughs> do you want wow. it or i'm throwing it away and i said no 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 i'm going to do something give me 2 months so i got you know small blocks i would say maybe about 4 feet wide because that tree was a giant i got i think about 10 feet long logs from the tree i still have those pieces i'm still working on them and then i started working and i said you know i'm going to make you my first sculpture but i'm going to make more things out of it and then i decided i'm going to make a sphere again i think naivety of not knowing sometimes helps you yeah ignorance is bliss exactly so i would not make a sphere right now because it's a very tough form to make but i ended up making sphere out of that oak tree and then we are surrounded by an area where we have beautiful oak trees around us and i want to use that i want to use naturally fallen trees to use my wood instead of cutting them on purpose so now i actually got calls from friends or people who know in my neighborhood that this tree is getting cut do you want to come and get it so i like you know sort of saving them from being chipped away which is nice that mulch is being made but sometimes this wood is so beautiful for it to be just let go so true So it's almost like from metal sculpting to wood sculptures was like a natural progression just because of stuff around you and you sort of played with it and you enjoyed the experience is what I'm understanding. Also, you know, the pandemic hit and I just started using the foundry. It was again a very tedious process of making metal sculptures. We actually make it three times in the process. You have to have a studio, you have to have a foundry. 
and because of pandemic i did not have access to the foundry the college had closed and it was very frustrating for me so imagine i just started in 2019 experimenting with everything and 2020 everything closes and i experimented in my studio with different mediums resin i gave myself a rash and i thought okay never resin again i tried poured cement which kept slipping through my casts i still remember i would like literally come home at in the middle of the night to my husband crying like another experiment failed and then the wood came and i thought i had to pivot the way i'm been making metal sculptures because there's no mold required instead of adding clay you're subtracting things from the wood to make it and once done there's no way to correct it again so you have to learn to go with the medium as you go but once i started working with wood it completely fascinated me it's like i have my own little pets that i'm talking and actually i would correct that i think it's hard as a pet because i came in like oh i know what i want to do with you but over time i think i've learned that wood tells me equally what needs to be done wow. and that has changed the perspective of how i look at my medium that is such a beautiful story tell me more about it like talk to us about you know one of your pieces of art which brought out that emotion i think there always is a favorite right i think the favorite in different ways yeah the commission that i got for instance which was i think about a 1500 pound log and i had to bring it home and how do i bring it home and i got two commissions a big one and a small one i literally had to cover the big one because every time i'd cross from my driveway where i store my wood i would get so scared what am i going to do how am i going to do it and i thought if i keep thinking about it i'm not addressing the smaller one so i literally covered it with a tarp so once it's covered it's gone out of my sight it's almost like a physical act of not thinking about it anymore but it was my most audacious goal to even move it when we were planning to install it we broke the cart underneath three times we had to again rechange the directions on how do you move it which tools do you use to even transport it even to understand what's going to be the center of gravity how do i even cut it to even get it standing on the base and then i decided to hollow it completely on the inside so imagine you know this big round giant i would sometimes even sit in it and then you know go about doing it making it hollow so i think it taught me that scale can be achieved you can do it step by step and i'm a one person studio it's not like i have a team of people assisting me i do go to people you know thankfully have access to structural engineers or hardware engineers who give me inputs about things but yet you know i'm on my own with my own chainsaw but i feel like you know this artist ruta sawas she was again a woman sculptor from bomb in a community come from a farming background and she said you know sculpting is like farming you keep at it and something will come out of it and i feel like you know every day matters every day input matters with these big projects even with small ideas i guess that will always be my piece that taught me you know you can do bigger stuff on your own i may need more tools more structure around my studio to help me with that but back to the thing that that i let wood speak more i've come to realize it is an organic medium it is a living medium i can control some of what's happened to it before or what's going to happen to it but more or less it has its own life and i need to respect that for instance i was drilling this log and then i found infection inside it and then i was like okay i'm going to drill to see how far is infection and by the time i ended up drilling where the infection was where the bug had gone you know i was left with pretty much nothing and i felt pretty you know it's like you've spent so many days and more than days i think once you decide this log you commit to a log that i'm going to make sculptures out of it then i kind of feel very committed to it and i'm going to see you through no matter what 
I'll fix your deficiency, so to speak, and I'll work with you. We'll create a firm out of it. But instead of being upset, and I thought, you know, how about I look at it that I'm collaborating with a bug. And in a way, this is the life of the wood. And it gave me beautiful abstract forms, actually, when I started just chasing where the bug went. And I called them the lines of destinies. And in a way, you know, reminding us of our destiny lines. And I'm expediting the destiny and telling you where the wood was meant to be. And that has, I would say, liberated me in, in many ways. That I'm now more free to look at wood to say, you know, it's lived a life. These things, these marks show something. And I'm okay with that now. Beautiful, Priyanka. So many life lessons in one interaction, you know, with a big oak tree. That is absolutely mind-blowing. So what did you finally make out of that commission? So there were two different commissions, actually. Um, I also work with old toys that I ask the community to give me and then I install them in the pieces because I want their participation in these public sculptures. I know for the one that I was talking about was because it was pretty much right after the pandemic. When the parks had opened, there were happy sounds in the parks. And the city values itself for its beautiful parks. They invest in it. I sat in actually one of their city meetings to understand the essence of the city as well. And I was pretty surprised on how much they invest in the community, community spaces, public spaces. So I wanted to honor that. And I wanted it to look like a little musical instrument, so to speak. So I followed it completely for that purpose. And then I installed steel wires on the top so that it's almost like you could play with this. So for the happy sounds that were back in the park. So it's not just a piece of art. It's almost like a functional piece of art. I hope nobody's climbing on it and playing it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Shifting gears, right? In that whole conversation, I heard that your husband is your sounding board. Someone you went it out to. Your mother is your, you know, the caregiver who's always worried about her daughter and a child. And clearly not just from a... I think gender perspective, just from a career perspective, what you did is not conventional. But then to make it into a career is even more complicated. So tell me, how did you deal with all these challenges or skepticism or, you know, naysayers for lack of a better word, if there were any? You know, luckily I'm in a part of life where people think it's okay for a woman to twiddle her thumb, which is such a shame. That's what everybody thought. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I have a husband. I don't have to financially go out and chase that path. And that allowed me the experiments. I knew from the day one when I went into it, when I was apprenticing with my handy person that I wanted to be full time, whatever that is. I wasn't sure that financially how it's going to be, but I knew that time wise, I'm going to give it all in. It's going to be that, that purpose that I saw everybody have it in Japan, at least. And, you know, in that same country, I met this artist. He works with Indigo. He was in the middle of this village that we'd gone. And was surprised. We just bumped upon him on this beautiful uh, little old hut-like structure. And there he is in very humble surroundings. And yet his art was priced at a value where he knew what he's doing. Because it takes time to make that Indigo in that traditional way. It takes knowledge to make that thing. And the way he displayed it, the way he priced it, he knew it is of value. And I completely admired him to hold his ground to say, you know, what I'm making is a value. And that forces even somebody like me who does not know enough about Indigo to question. Yes, tell me why and how do you make it? And I knew I need to have something like that. When I make work, I know if it is a value. I know how much time I put. I dream of my work really like, you know, when I go to bed and I think about my pieces, I do research about my topics sometimes. 
So it's not just the labor, it's also thought that goes into making it. Just because I'm a woman and I have the privilege, yes, of time, uh, doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be looked at that way. Mm-hmm. So there were, I guess, naysayers in that way. Or what are you doing? And my family in India, of course, also question like, <laughs> why would you, you know, America is supposed to be the laborless place, right? So why would true. You and then, you know, still dig up dirt, so to speak. But I enjoy it. I want to see where it leads. I think it takes me back to my introduction of there are countless reasons why you shouldn't do it, but just one that you were clear about it. Yeah. Yes. I, I think I was pretty clear that it is going to be a full-time passion. It is going to be something that, that is my life more purpose. Yes. And the person in Japan almost became like your unsaid mentor without being around you. He's really influenced you and played a huge role in your finding your purpose. You know, as an artist, Time is what you have most because I'm with my wit. There is nothing else. There's me and my thoughts. There are so many thoughts that process you on a daily basis, actually, that you also have to be cognizant on what thoughts you're letting in right now. So I'm more mindful, actually, of what th- what I'm thinking when I'm making my sculptures. But I don't know if there was one trigger. And my, frankly, there were so many, as I said, there were these little doors that kept opening one after other. And I kept chasing like, a, like an Alice in a Wonderland. So you spoke about all your different experiences and interactions which sort of defined your themes and, you know, what you sort of worked on. You picked up these paternity leaves and maternity leaves to, you know, sort of go and camp in Japan and so on. So talk to us a little bit about that because everyone thinks about these things, but very few people really put that stick on the ground and do it. So my husband and I, we realized that travel just for a few weeks is is great but to truly understand a culture or truly understand the ways of living things differently in different parts of the world is to at least stay for a month so we decided with the newborn babies we're going to travel japan australia uk and we spent months in those countries but i feel more than anything like one particular thing that you see it's to see the world in a new way right because you're new and then that curiosity about the same thing it could be, you know, even the sunsets, like in Hawaii world. Why am I looking at the sunsets there? <laughs> the sunset happened every day. But I think it's a fact that you pause and you look at the world. We all look at the wood the same way, but sometimes I pause and I see, you know, and then I bring that out to the viewers. And that helps, I guess. Travel helps with that. You don't have to travel per se to do that. You could hone that ability sitting at home. But we also enjoy, I guess, experimenting with food, with languages, with different cultures. So that helps. Um, in terms of ideas, I still don't know where do they come from. At any given point of time, I have at least 20 to 30 ideas. For me, it is to sit with one and commit to it and then finish it. I wish I knew where the ideas came from because I do hear from other artists that, you know, oh, I don't have any inspiration right now. And I've never felt that in the five years that I've been creating artwork. And I wonder if it ever comes to me. I have no clue where these ideas are coming from. I should learn to recognize that, oh, this is when I think. You know, this or this is, has triggered or this is what I should feed myself more, you know, visually or cerebrally to give me these ideas. But so far, I have no clue where they come from. <laughs> Hopefully I will know in a few more years. I'm becoming more aware of it. You talked about Australia, you talked about Japan, you talked about Hawaii now. I know you also spent a stint in France. So what were, you know? As life lessons, any takeaways, any interesting reflections? I would say definitely flexibility. And I would also say the kindness of strangers. 
In fact, I thought I'm going to start this year and I have this great idea of making a whole piece about the kindness that I find the strangers have shown us as individuals and definitely more as parents. And I feel like everything gets amplified when you travel with kids, the goods and the bads of different cultures. But it's also fun to see how they think the same thing so differently. You know, I've been reprimanded for bottle feeding my kid in Berlin, but they did not charge me for milk. Or my kids have been taken out on the streets. They're like, no, 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 you go have your dinner. They're playing with the dog. We've got an eye on them. And in Japan, I was so tired. This woman next to me, she said, I've got your baby. If you want to take a nap, you take a nap. And she took out her napkin, cleaned her face and everything. And, you know, in Morocco, this gentleman thought that my kid was, you know, she was my, I have a wild child, my younger one. And then I had to go out of the restaurant to calm her down, to bring her back into the restaurant. Then somebody else opened the door and he thought, I need help. He asked his wife, you know, this woman needs help. And I'm somehow sitting in the middle of their tea party. <laughs> like, how did that happen? But strangers have been extremely kind. And you bring that back home, right? The sense of hope, I guess. And art world can be very dismal sometimes. I want my pieces to have hope if I can, you know. Yeah. I love that. That's very interesting. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit, right? How do you believe your background in, you know, your MBA or your mathematics contributed to your journey as a sculptor? So I feel sculpting is part problem solving, really. You you thought that's what's going to happen, but you needed something else. You needed a different angle. You needed a different support. I think somewhere there's an engineering task always. That does help, I guess, with my abilities. I was not good with numbers, but I was good with problem solving, even in math. And I guess my MBA, you know, when I applied for this public art commission so early on in my career, and everybody, I think I surprised even myself that how did I get these parts? Part of it was on, so when you submit a proposal, you have to have a, a whole expenses laid out and you have to have a plan, you have to have the design, you have to have the idea. And I think that helped in doing those early commissions, but I'm also learning there is also the nuances of the art world that have to be included now. Maybe I'll include learning as I go, but I do think it helped me in my early commissions. Most definitely. Yeah. You said you're a single one-man army, obviously, and I totally relate to that. So balancing between creating art and promoting yourself must have been so challenging, right? So how did you navigate this balance between creating and marketing? So I wish I would, you know, be just left alone with my own wood making the sculpture, but I have to push myself out to interact, to show, to visit, to apply for different art shows, for different projects. And it isn't fun. You'd be surprised on how good talented artists are around us and how few opportunities exist for them, yeah. even, you know, in the Bay Area. So it's like, for every 10 you apply, you get one. And that's a standard story. Sometimes it helps to talk to other artists because I was pretty much down by myself thinking I'm getting so many no's. And then I spoke to you know, a couple of artists and they all said it's the same experience. You just keep applying. You pick yourself up because every time I apply, I feel so hopeful. You know, this is it. I have you know such a great idea. This is the best fit. I'm going to get a yes. But then you do get a no. And then you start working and you start applying and you start thinking. There are some tools out there to help artists to keep a check on which other institutions are seeking. Mm -hmm. So they're called open calls, they're websites to go to. I've attended some talks by seasoned uh, public artists as well to see how do they apply. And they've been very generous in sharing the knowledge about things. 
Awesome. That's really interesting. You know, to convert that hobby and that passion into work, into profession, into something which you want to make sure people value, right? And you're making your effort to put yourself out there to ensure that they value. And I've seen your work. I think it's absolutely stunning. I saw those pictures when you were doing that artwork. You know, I can see you're fully immersed in, right? So keeping that in mind, does imposter syndrome ever impact, especially when you value your work? Or did it ever impact? For sure. You know, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing this artist's work. And he said, you know, the most dangerous thing is to send a painting out in the world, but we must. So imagine every time I put my work out on a social media platform or for submission, it's out there for everybody to judge. Yeah. What does this mean? Why did you make it? And how did you make it? And then, of course, when you put a price and that's there too. There is always, at least for me, there is an imposter syndrome. And I'm not trained in this profession. And then I'm using mediums that are not traditional. I'm using fabric with wood or I'm using wood that's not treated. So you, how do I tell somebody that, you know, hey, this may not have the same life as a stone sculpture, but you must because it required the same effort or the thoughts. Hmm. I guess there are times when I just tell the syndrome that, you know, imposter syndrome, like, you stay quiet right now, let me work. And you just jump and then you just put it out there. And whatever happens, it's all right. And somewhere to have a little thicker skin over time. Some may not like it. Some may like it. Some may think it's ridiculous on how often do you post or how often do you share or how often do you apply. But I must do what I must do for my pieces. I feel they're meant to be seen by the world and you do what you need to do. Who's your biggest cheerleader, Priyanka? My family, for sure. My kids, my husband, my mom, my sisters, they all show up. My dad thinks it's a hobby <laughs> still. <laughs> but, you know, they all support me. It's actually, it's a very asking process. So imagine I'm covered in sawdust, talked down. So even if I'm at home, I can't go and go to the kitchen and fix a snack for the kids. They got to wait for me to, you know, be accessible. And there's always a trail of sawdust somewhere or the other. There's always this wood that's covered. There's always the studio that they can't access because my pieces are stored in there. They're all very respectful of that, actually. In fact, I've also learned to share my nose with the kids. That see, I got these many nose. So one day my son was leaving for his school and he's like, mom, I hope your sculpture gets selected. And, you know, for him to think like that and for them to show up for my work and also to see me be a little anxious about it and yet be okay around me because it consumes you sometimes. I'm learning to separate that out. I haven't done a good job of it. They've been my champions for sure. You've role modeled everything for them, right? So you've role modeled failing, you've role modeled jumping out of it, coming back to doing it again, staying committed. So many life lessons for them to see there and then. And I also want girls and women to see, you know, we're, we don't associate strength with women. And I want them to know that, you know, we have it. I enjoy having that strength. I enjoy showing off that strength. And there are times when people think, oh, the noise that's coming from a house must be a man using a chainsaw. And people have commented on that too. That does your husband like to do woodworking? And he does, but that's the other style of woodworking that he does. He loves making furniture. I want my son to know that, you know, women have the strength that they can do jobs too, <laughs> that, they, that people think they can't. Walk us through your process of conceptualizing a piece from its inception to its completion. So actually, I feel like I'm very good with my spatial thinking. And I'd never realized till, but there were all these cues. I love doing puzzles. I'm a great spotter when we go for safaris, actually. I've been given a little honey bottle by a safari guy because like, wow, how did you find that out there? 
because I think I can do the patterns. I can see pattern and I can see something's odd there. So when I see, you know, a concept, it's pretty clear in my head. What is it that I want to do? In fact, you know, I tried bouncing off my ideas with my middle sister, who's a lawyer. And she's like, I don't know what you mean. How can you envision a certain, well, you can't see it. Because for me, it's like so clear once you can see things. I've been told that it's also good practice to draw. I'm not very good at that. I'm trying to get better at it. So I go to the process back in. I, there's an idea that comes in. I do write about it sometimes. Not the form, but, you know, the feeling that I felt like words or something else. And then the word takes over. And then, of course, it's funny because you jump in with a thought, but then wood has its own ideas. And as I said, I'm getting more and more comfortable letting it participate too. And that shapes the final form. And sometimes, just like last night, you're not happy with the form. And then there's something, you know, heavy that you bring back to the bed. That, okay, you know, I'm not happy with what I did. But I've seen, again, it comes with more practice. If you stay with it, if you stay with what's irritating you, what's troubling you, you end up creating something that you finally say, wow, I love it. And it could be a small thing, a small angle here and a small line there, or it could be like finishing. You just be at it. You're with the word you work it. And finally, somebody asked me, so how do you know a piece is finished? I think when I oil it is when I know that a piece is finished. It's done now. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. So, you know, early on, you also spoke about the fact that wood can sometimes not live forever, like a metal piece, right? So I'm just curious, can you just not treat the wood at all? I learned how do you treat the wood at home with heat. So created this little box of insulation that can dismantle and I can put it together. And then I put in, take it to the heat that it needs. But having even said that, it is an organic medium. And for outdoor sculptures, they have a life of their own. But again, there's an artist, David Nash. He's inspired me tremendously. And he's free with the cracks. The, the wood will shift. There will be cracks even once, you know, the big logs. And he's absolutely okay. And they're beautiful. And in fact, the more free you are with the medium, the beautiful they get. In fact, when you're trying to tame them, they don't look pretty. Because you're trying to somehow hide and shape and do this. But if you let them be, they're just beautiful. They're splitting. It's okay. They're outdoors. They have a life of eight years or 10 years. And that's also okay. And I felt like if he's allowing himself, then I'm allowed to do that too. These cracks are also okay. And let the wood be. So it is not metal for sure. It doesn't follow the rules like metal does. I love that. You know, it's so interesting, Priyanka. So my husband loves DIY stuff and he loves using his hand. He's going to love your conversation. So he actually designed a very interesting coffee table from India. And the other day I noticed, like you're saying, there's a split. It's warped, right? It's probably not untreated wood. And I told him, I said, it's a lovely table, but look at that crack. And his immediate question was, but so what? That's natural, you know? That's the difference between you and your lawyer sister and me and my husband. <laughs> <laughs> That's the creative mind that says, come on, allow it to breathe. So you are treating it like a piece of live wood and I'm seeing it as a piece of furniture. That's the biggest difference, right? And I love that. Yeah. Awesome. This has been so lovely, Priyanka. And, you know, before we sort of end the conversation, I have one question for you. So with the wisdom of hindsight, or if your daughter had to come and tell you or your son had to come and tell you that I want to get into this as a profession, how are you going to respond to it? And what would be your perspective to them? You know, frankly, I feel that I'm myself an emerging artist with just five years. In fact, that gets problematic sometimes because I'm also a 40-year-old woman. So how do you call yourself an emerging artist? And that becomes a disadvantage for me sometimes. 
But I do feel over the time I want to have these answers for them. And that's why I want my practice to be flourishing financially and emotionally fulfilling to say, yes, it's a viable career. What I would do differently, and I'm trying to do that every day, is to, while I'm all in, you know, to separate out the outcome, because it can be very disheartening to hear the nose, for instance, but it's not a reflection on the work, really. Mm. And I'm trying to have a little sensibility of that. And my trips to India have helped because these traditional artists, they don't put their name on these pieces. And yet the devotion that they show to work is, is still untarnished. So it, it doesn't matter if the names are there or not. The work itself should show. And I'm trying to learn from that. Maybe I'll tell them to have that in the practice early on. And we all grew up with the sensibility in India, right? Don't get so attached to the outcome, get attached to the process, even of putting yourself out there, I guess. But I'm still learning. That's why it's a little hazy. But I would tell them because it is it requires a little steadiness. This career is so passion driven. It requires some steadiness in some corner. And I would ask them to have that steadiness, perhaps. And I've seen that in artists and especially in these traditional uh, religion artists who have that steadiness. It is perhaps a religion that grounds them, but it could be something else that grounds you. So... I would advise that. So you won't discourage them and say, are you crazy? Like that's not a financially viable profession. You know, my daughter was like, mom, can I have two careers? I said, uh, okay. She said, I want to be an artist and I want to be a paleontologist. And I said, honey, if you're an artist, you may need two careers. (laughs) (laughs) But I've seen, I have seen, I have friends who are artists who are doing it well, supporting their families through this. It is definitely a viable profession. I'm a little new to it, but I also feel like how, Nobody questioned my husband who started a startup and did not make money for the first three or four years. Yet that time is valued so much. And I'm thinking of myself as a startup really, that, you know, I'm going to give it, I'm investing in myself and it will show one day. I love the analogy of the startup when giving us that permission to give it that time to get successful, right? Yes. And also to not feel guilty sometimes because they're expensive tools. I'm keeping my accounting, you know, and then every time I get a commission, then I put that against things that I want to invest in, in my studio. I would love to have this nice big shed on a farmhouse one day, but I'm thinking of it as a startup that I'm investing in and it will, I know it will. And another advice that I got was to not compare. Sometimes you do feel like, where am I headed? What's going on? It is a very ambiguous profession. And it helps to sometimes go backward and say, oh, am I better than yesterday? And I am. Then I'm on the right path. And I see myself taking leaps each year and I'm proud of that. And I feel that keeps me going too, that I'm in the right direction. Lovely. Many profound life lessons, Priyanka, from an artist's lens. I absolutely hope you're going to inspire a lot of people. And before we end, so what is next for Priyanka? And I'd love for you to even use this platform to talk about your work. So, you know, I am a San Francisco-based cutter. I do work with Untreated Wood, as you said. And you can find my work on my website, which is priyankarana.com. I've been blessed that I had some public commissions. Um, they've been temporary installations. I would love next for me to have permanent installation. And I'm working with materials that behave like wood, look like wood, but they can survive the elements. I would love for my work to also expand beyond the area. They are heavy pieces, so I have to think of logistics. How will they move? But I'd love for them to travel outside of California, outside of U.S. as well. Yeah, those two things are next for me. I'd also love to go to a place and use local woods and then create something there. Or local materials, local toys, perhaps, for instance, that kids would give. And then I'd install something. That would be nice. 
given that you love going and camping in different countries, I think that probably sounds like a very doable thing <laughs> where you're concerned, Priyanka. Awesome. Thank you very much. I wish you all the very best and look forward to bringing you back to know what happened to the startup in a few years. Yes, thank you for having me. What a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being a part of this incredible journey with Atlanta Diaries. I have had the privilege of hosting guests who courageously shared their most vulnerable selves with me. And even if only a small segment of these conversations can champion the journey of one person, it will be worth each and every moment. And together, we know we can create an even greater impact. So I do have a humble request for you. If you found value in these episodes, please consider sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and on your social media. I would also love to hear your thoughts and will really appreciate if you could take a moment to leave a review or rating. See you next week for another inspiring journey on Atlanta Diaries.